0: Welcome to PsychPod, a safe space where you can listen to professionals talk about topics, questions and ideas that matter. For our first episode, we have Nupur D. Paiva, a Chartered Clinical Psychologist, Associate Fellow with the British Psychological Society, Child Psychotherapist and Mother of Two. She started Family Tree, a child and adolescent mental health team in 2018. She teaches infant observation on the psychotherapy training course at Ambedkar University, Delhi. She is the author of Love and Rage, The Inner Worlds of Children. And along with her husband, Richard Paiva, she is a co-founder of The Art of Sport, a development program for girls using sport and group therapy. For her own energy and emotional balance, she likes to dance. And though her motor coordination does not approve, she does not let that stop her. Good afternoon, ma'am. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Our topic for
1: today is the stigma around mental health and counselling. Our first question for you is, do you think that people are reluctant to start therapy due to the social stigma that comes with it?
2: I think yes, that does, that certainly does continue. I think that there is, um, it comes in different formats. There are younger, see, I work in a child and adolescent team. right and a family team so I don't my team doesn't see individual adults so the while I have anecdotal evidence for that kind of thing what I know certainly is that even for young children they won't want to go and see a counselor in a school because other kids will find out right so it starts very early Um, and it's about they will uh, and other children will be like oh why do you have to go see the counselor oh are you crazy what
3: it doesn't just start with the parents it comes with the kids as well
2: yeah it certainly comes with children as well and I've had children uh, come to me and say that uh, there is no chance in hell that they are going to see me Um, and that there is no way that they are going to go and see the counselor in school and why would they want to talk to a random person so there's all kinds of uh, reasons. Stigma is one of them. Like that they'd be made fun of is one of them.
3: Where do you think these stigmas actually originate from? Is it related to like some social hierarchies or a certain value system?
2: See, it's, it's complicated. It's twofold actually. One is that we tend to judge ourselves um, that that we should, and you can't see me, but I'm doing should in inverted commas that we should be able to sort it out ourselves there is a big belief that we should be able to sort out emotional things by ourselves whereas we don't have such a big problem with going to get help for a physical issue I'm saying we don't have such a big problem there are there are many of us who do have a problem getting help even for physical issues Um, and there is a big but less than emotional issues there is sufficient research to suggest that uh, there is a between men and women, and men tend to have a lot more difficulty getting help even for physical issues. Then there is a uh, research that suggests that there are uh, that there is a big uh, difficulty in getting help for uh, gynecological issues or urinary issues.
3: Yeah, so that because it becomes more personal, I think.
2: That's right. So yeah, so the more private it is, the more internal it is the more difficult it is. Like, I think the easiest would be like a broken bone. And they are not something that are necessarily taught to us. It's, um, it becomes the way in which the family operates. And so we just learn it because it's like in the air. It's more like
3: how people around you are actually behaving. It's not, it's just that they're making fun of you or if kids and you just don't want to go.
2: Precisely. And because all of us, all human beings we have we have mixed feelings about being seen like uh, we, we all have mixed feelings about how are we going to be received by somebody else are we going to be received with openness and compassion and kindness or are we going to be received with judgment and assessment and like oh you know somebody's like checking you out through and through and then they're going to be like oh well you know you're good enough or not good enough And that applies to everything from what we wear to what our grades are, to how our hair looks, to uh, how we smell or not. And so obviously your emotional state is just one of those things.
1: So do you think it's a self-image issue? Like if I have a strong sense of self, it will be a different situation?
2: Yes, I think that uh, a strong sense of self and a a, a more settled sense of who I am And being okay with myself which includes being okay with my imperfections because nobody's perfect um, is at the basis of a solid sense of mental health but then if you have a good sense of self chances are you're not going to need such heavy mental health intervention because a good sense of self comes from a a very uh, safe emotionally secure early upbringing
3: do you think that it's education or lack of it which contributes to these stigmas and affects like people's thought processes?
2: Uh, well education does make uh, a difference yes but it's, uh, it's not something that's going to but more than anything else it's um, in as much that education might make the diff- might make the shift from say um, there's a mental health problem in the family Hambaljidarin now balaji i don't know if you know is a very well known temple uh, between in rajasthan and uh, it's uh, really very well known for dealing with mental disorders okay so you might ha- education might make the difference between balaji ja rahe hain ya psychiatrist ke paas it might make that kind of uh, shift uh, about uh, what are your treatment options but in terms and in fact the stigma at balaji is a lot less i can tell you than it is on going to a psychiatrist. Because at Balaji, the belief is that there is sankat ayah. Now, sankat on just, just listen to the sentence itself, which means it's come from the outside. right? And the moment it has come from the outside, it means that this person needs our help. So the entire family will gather together and take the person to Balaji. Nobody goes to Balaji alone. You're not allowed to go to Balaji alone. There is a dharamshala. You have to stay there. There has to be an attendant who is a family member, and you are looked after. Whereas, you go to the psychiatrist, the psychiatrist says there's something wrong inside this person, neurochemistry, here's a pill. So, it changes, education will affect that kind of uh, thinking. It, uh, what effect it has on stigma is, is a bit hard to tell.
3: We were talking earlier with, with like, um, men having a little bit of an issue more than women to go to like even for some physical issue if they did is there more stigma like where is the stigma more with women going to therapy or men? Um,
2: I think that for boys to ask for help for boys to show vulnerability is more difficult Uh, in my experience I have learned that the Women hide their power and, women and men hide their vulnerability.
3: So I was just asking what you think is the most effective way of challenging social stigmas surrounding these psychological disorders like depression or even anxiety, especially in India.
2: Let's begin with looking at where one's mental health is really affected in a, a day-to-day functioning kind of way in a much more global sense. So where denying it is much more difficult, like for example... Uh, the schizophrenia and the bipolar disorders right which are also exceedingly difficult to treat, those have become the the benchmark of mental disorders that has become the the caricature almost and the the stereotype of mental ill health but anxiety and depression are extensions of i'm not saying they're the same thing as but they are extensions of what um, is otherwise in the range of normal human experience. So they become much more difficult to, for people to take seriously and, and attend to with professional input. Because it looks so similar to, oh, you're sad. Or, oh, you're stressed.
1: So are you saying that these more severe disorders should be more focused on?
2: I'm saying that actually the stigma is all the way up there. Because the stigma is all the way up there, like it starts there, right? And, and yet the prevalence of that is not necessarily low. Schizophrenia the world over is a one in 500 adults are diagnosed with schizophrenia the world over. Okay, that is the epidemiology study on it. So one in 500 means in my colony where I live right now, there would be at least three cases. But the you don't get to see it, you don't get to hear it, you don't. Nobody talks about it. So the stigma comes from all the way up there that I'll be considered crazy, and therefore the l- lower dysfunctional levels of uh, emotional distressing conditions get ignored.
0: Yeah. So you're basically saying it's a trickle down effect, right? Because it's so. Uh, stigmatized at the top, it kind of trickles down to even the ones that can be dealt with on a more g- like general like issues. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and
2: they are, it's a, it's a trickle down in a way that, oh, you know, um, uh, AIB, I think, had done a video uh, on YouTube, which is comparing um, uh, if depression was tr- Treat, if we treated typhoid the way we treat depression. So, in that, a, a guy calls, it's all men, so a ma- man calls his friend and he says, Oh, you know, mujhe na typhoid ogya, kabir uh, and all that. So, his friend tells him, ya, don't think about it, let's go for a movie. And the whole thing continues like that, where uh, somebody is telling another person, Look, I have typhoid. Or, where the word typhoid is to be replaced with depression. Like, I am feeling very depressed. I am depressed. And then the reactions that the world gives you. So when you replace the word depression with something like typhoid, then you begin to see how bizarre people's reactions actually are. That nobody hears you. You say to somebody, I'm depressed. And they say, oh, don't think about it. Come, let's do something else. No, no, forget it. Let's go watch a movie. Which is basically, let's ignore it. But would you ignore typhoid? So I have a question.
1: Do you know how, how now in society, everybody is like, oh, I'm depressed, oh, I'm depressed. And it's become sort of like a slang. Yes. <laughs> so do you, think this is, do you think this is like a way of uh, another way of the social stigma of like depressing when you're actually depressed? Or do you think like people are just taking advantage of it?
2: You know, you have, to go, you have to go more by just, you have to, in terms of diagnosis, um, one has to look a little wider than just the words coming out of people's mouths. You have to look at their functioning in terms of their appearance. Are they like managing to look after themselves? Are they eating? What's their sleep like? Are they managing to go to work, et cetera? So in terms of severity, all of this uh, is assessed before somebody is given a clinical diagnosis. But as far as an experience of low mood is concerned, um, you know, I would tend to take people's word for it. I I wouldn't say people are uh, taking advantage of it. I think that there is, in fact, a very widely prevalent and deeply experienced state of low mood that we have nowadays.
1: So what do you think is different nowadays than before? Like why do we experience this deep mood these days?
2: I think it's a combination of things. One is that the language has permitted its use much more. In the West, of course, the language has been around for a lot longer. Once Prozac was introduced as something that could alleviate low mood, it became much easier for people to say that, yes, I suffer from low mood or I'm depressed, etc. cetera. Uh, in our country, I think that it's more the recent generations, my generation and the one after that have the language to be able to say I am depressed. I think before this people's depression was cloaked in lots of different ways. Um, I would say that my grandmother's generation, for example, didn't have the opportunity to be able to use a word like this. Um, they would perhaps immerse themselves in uh, religion or satsang or reading the Ramayana or the Hanuman Chalisa or some such thing or would uh, would somatize it, which basically means put it into a physical uh, ailment. And uh, there are are huge amounts of research in India to suggest that women uh, uh, present somatic ailments as a way of expressing depression. So I'd say that in terms of its prevalence, it's been around forever. It's about uh, what language has made possible. And so we hear more. And I think that that's a more recent generation generational move.
3: Young kids, like teenagers and all, use the word depression or anxiety or panic attacks and stuff like that very loosely. So, do you think that kind of affects the way they're actually feeling? Like they might not be depressed, but because they're using the word depression so much again and again, saying that they're depressed, they're depressed, does that? do you think that can actually affect and make them feel that emotion even though they might not be?
2: See, depressed is not an emotion. Depressed is actually trying to suppress an emotion. It's usually marked by absences rather than the presence of something. Regardless of the fact that a young person, you know, we we see a lot of teenagers and yeah, people are using the word panic attack quite loosely, sure. But that's not the point. What we come to it with is a curiosity of See, sometimes our language doesn't necessarily do a very good job of representing our internal state. So as a psychotherapist, I'm curious about what is your internal state? What is your experience? So we get into a more elaborate conversation about it. Use a a word like panic attack or depressed or anxious as a short form. Because honestly, I don't know what that
0: means. It doesn't doesn't explain to me how you feel. When students come and seek help, and if they are slightly reluctant or not that open, do you think it's more or less because of how people are thinking internally today, or do you think it's, sh- it is because of what people around them are saying?
2: Well, what we find is that when young people, as in 16 and above, who are making the decision that I want to come for help, there is always a part of them that is also resisting. Okay, now this isn't uh, restricted to young people. This is all of us. But that that is an internal resistance. The fact that they have arrived in my office means that they have pretty much overcome the social stigma part of it.
1: So then how do you get people to your office? Like, what about the people who don't realize that they need help or they don't want to accept that they need help? Like, do you play any role in that? Uh,
2: No, we do not play a direct role in that because uh, in terms of like a planned intervention um, we my team works at a level where it we work with emotion and relationship issues which are of a quite a depth nature so we rely on our uh, referral links with like school counselors and people who work in NGOs etc to do the grassroots work and they identify the ones who uh, may need help etc and then we are usually a second level referral network part of that we we're like at the second stage where somebody has already identified that this person could do with help and then the referral comes to us so we're not in the front line
1: okay, so but what about like if we wanted to help somebody like how would you advise us to like convince them that they need help or try to get them to a person like you
2: see that's always a tricky one because you have to approach the person with, with compassion with a way of communicating that is, that lets them know that you are seeing their suffering and that they needn't suffer that actually there is a way of that yes it is painful but it need not be a suffering and that is a difference between pain and suffering and If you're going to approach a friend, for example, uh, the main thing that they need to receive from you is a sense of your care, not of anger, not of irritation, not of impatience, not of, can't you see that you are really like, you would do, why why are your minds so closed or some such thing, which happens a lot in families, Um, This kind of aggressive way of trying to get some help. uh, That doesn't work. So... I would say that you speak to them directly and, uh, and make sure that they receive from you that you will really do care. That would be the only way. But that it is, in, it is eventually, at the end of the day, their choice. The reason I say that is because time and time again, we have found that there is nothing that young people appreciate more than being given room to make their own decisions. When young people are given the communication, the the message that look, see, I understand that you are going through this and we may be able to help you. We may not be able to help you. We don't know, honestly. Uh, But if you don't engage with us, then we certainly won't be able to help you. But eventually, at the end of the day, I have no right to drag you to do something that you don't want to do. We found that that communication with uh, teenagers, with young adults, is the one that is the most powerful. But it is also deeply respectful, because if you think about it, I can't actually... Even make a two year old who's decided, Mujhe ye dal khani hai. you can't make a two year old open their mouth. You can bribe them, you can scare them, you can argue with them, you can uh, cajole them, you can convince them. But a two year old also will only open their mouth to eat the dal if they say, chal, thik hai, I'll open my mouth to eat the dal. So, you know, people have their own will. And it's important that that will is respected. I can't make you do something if you don't, at some level, want to do it.
3: that makes complete sense, because I think now it's very different also with the young generation also. And that's when you go into the whole rebellious phase of just being like, just because, yeah, you've told me I won't do it.
2: <laughs> exactly. And with, with adolescents, uh, and, you know, we have a lot of experience working with adolescents. I mean, it, it's a symbolic middle finger. It's like, it's not like look I, uh, yes oh okay fine you know I, I know it's good for me but the fact that you are pushing me to do it is sufficient to make me tell you to f off. It's like I'll do it when I'm ready. And honestly, that's true. Yeah. And you know there is nothing more frustrating for a uh, mental health professional to have a client in the room who is physically there only because तुम You know, it's literally a case of you can take the horse to water, you cannot make it drink. So we we have uh, parents who will say to us, oh, you know, the young person, like, uh, say it's a 14-year-old or a 12-year-old, they don't want to come to see your counselor. Um, But, you know, yeah, we'll tell them we're going to meet auntie and then we'll I was like, whoa, 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 hold on a second. Do you not think that in the first 30 seconds they will set eyes on me and be like, "Uh, this is no auntie? So, okay, like... It's like you, you tell your child, "Ha, ye dawai khalo, ye chini hai. Uh, okay, fine. You might manage it the first time. But the next time they're not going to trust you. It's a basic trust issue. Do not lie to your child about hum kahan ja rahe. I am not auntie. I am not a doctor. I will not give sui. I will not give dawai. We will just talk. Can you deal with that? There are families where they have not had the conversation of before they have arrived in my room? It's like you don't talk about talking in your house in your drawing room, apne your room, apne parivar ke with your family. Do you not talk to each other? So the first time they are having a conversation about whatever difficult issue it is, is in front of me, a stranger. So, you know, avoidance can take all kinds of shapes.
1: So that wraps up our talk for today on stigma around mental
3: health and counselling. Thank you so much for being with us. It was lovely talking to you.
2: I'm glad you find it helpful. And uh, I hope that uh, wherever this is uh, heard by people,
0: you make some sense of it.
3: Yeah, I hope it helps others also. Thank you
1: so much.
2: You're most welcome.
0: If anyone listening would like to reach out to Nupur Paiva personally, you can contact her through her website, www.thefamilytree.in. At PsychPod, we have outlets where anyone can ask questions on the chosen topics which we filter and incorporate in our podcast episodes. You can follow us on Instagram or email us. The details are in the description. Thank you so much for tuning in and stay tuned for more episodes and updates.